0: Arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane in 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Uh, the meeting. I guess what the meeting was somehow surveilled or, or something like that? Yeah, I think it was accidentally surveilled uh, by two state troopers at the time that happened to catch a license plate of somebody, um, and it led them to this meeting in Appalachia. And after that happened and it was exposed, you know, there were a lot of bosses there and a lot of prominent people here from around the country. Uh, They decided at that point that would never happen again. They would never have a meeting like that again. Our boy, Conrad Ritter, has mafioso connections, financial backers, if you will, that assure that his talent rises to the pinnacle. Dimitri Maritokas is the fixer with the mob for Conrad Ritter. Back in 1958, Catherine, Roz, and Tucker are unaware of who they are confronting as they begin questioning people who may have heard or seen anything about Billy and Shane's murder by Plymouth Rock. It's as if everything has been reset from Ritter and his cohorts pursuing and almost killing the three of them in the future. They soon learn that someone in a yellow Studebaker witnessed or at least observed Ritter's Volkswagen near Plymouth Rock when Billy and Shane were murdered. Shane's uncle, Bud Kerrigan, knew of Dimitri's criminality and then he had been murdered. One of Dimitri's lieutenants from the future is now younger and watching the three of them back in time. Let's begin this evening with Dimitri arriving by train to meet one of his handlers. The Butterfly and the Deadly Storm by Robert P. Fitton begins now. Chapter 24. Tucker drove the open Belvedere convertible past the Plymouth Rock portico. He pulled off Front Street near a dark clapboard house. Catherine wiped her face with a napkin from the F.W. Woolworth snack bar as Roz finished her charred hot dog. Enjoy the open air while you can, said Roz. That Boston station said colder weather was coming. Well, it is September, replied Catherine, smiling. Tucker maneuvered the car into a parking space along the water. Why don't you two talk to Mrs. Crawl about what she heard? I'll walk back along the waterfront and see what I can find out. Good idea. We don't want to overwhelm the lady, said Catherine. Roz mashed the hot dog, mustard, relish, onions, and sauce into her mouth. Tucker glanced over as he held the wheel. "'Think you have enough on that dog there, Roz?' "'It's the mile-long dog,' she answered, still chewing. "'Listen, nobody's made the connection between the backfire and the shots in Bud's car.' "'Your boyfriend Sid might,' said Catherine, chuckling. "'Watch it.' "'Yeah, leave Chipmunk alone,' said Tucker as they got out of the car. "'Very funny, Tuck, very funny.' Tucker grinned as they walked near a bulbous gray car with a dark metal visor separating the windshield. If we can find out more information, somebody who actually saw Ritter's Volkswagen near the portico. Do we really have to go out with that dog, Sid? Asked Roz. Tucker faced Catherine. Give me 45 minutes. I'll start asking questions while it's still fresh in people's minds. Don't answer my question, Tuck. Catherine wiped the mustard off of Roz's cheek. "'Don't get into trouble, Tucker.' "'Who, me? You?' "'Yes, ma'am,' he said, saluting. "'Okay, I'll be along the waterfront.' Catherine subtly smiled as Tucker headed for the portico. She pressed her lips as she sensed a growing affection for him. Roz crossed her arms in front of the car. (laughs) "'You like him.' "'Yeah, I like him.' "'No, I mean you like him.' I don't know if I like him, said Catherine as they crossed the street. I can't really figure him out, to be honest with you. Ah, what man can any of us figure out, she asked. Ross checked the painted green mailbox. Crowell. Okay, I'll tell you one thing. If this lady really heard the shots, she would have been right down the police station and singing to Danny Boy. Grass blades sprouted between the bricks on the front walk. They climbed the glossy gray steps. Roz gripped the brass knocker shaped like a ship and rapped against the thick doorboards. There's a reason for everything, Catherine Marie, and don't you ever forget it. Catherine held her wrist. You just tell that to Sid while we're at the drive-in. Police. Tucker smoked a tipperillo near the portico, and then he crawled over the wall. My God, what is he doing? What? Tucker just climbed over the ocean wall. The door creaked open. A woman with dyed black hair and glasses, wearing a lavender and black flowery dress, peered outside. Hello there, Mrs. Crowell. Yes, Eleanor Crowell. Dan Jensen sent us. Oh, Danny! Yes, yes, about the commotion outside my house last Thursday night. Sure, please come in. Thank you, Mrs. Crowell. Oh, please call me Eleanor. Catherine followed Roz into the warm air. The blinds were half open, shadowing the room. Antiques and knickknacks were stacked on the shelves, and tables, and even the window shelves, and the room reeked of mothballs. "'I appreciate you taking the time.' "'Does Danny think I heard something else other than a backfire?' she asked, sliding into a wooden rocking chair. Roz and Catherine sat on the flowery green couch. "'Are you sure it was a car backfiring?' asked Roz. "'Well, to tell you the truth, I think so. Can I get you two anything to eat? A drink, perhaps?' "'Oh, no, thanks. We just ate at Woolworth's there, El,' said Roz. "'Eleanor, did you see anyone out there?' asked Catherine. She moistened her lips and moved her head in a slow, circular motion, as if she couldn't wait to tell her story. Her whimsical and sweet voice sounded like a little girl. She smacked her lips after each sentence. "'Well, I had just gotten out of my bed and turned on Playhouse 90. My late husband insisted we get an RCA for the bedroom.' "'I had a glass of bicarbonate and some cod liver oil. "'Thank God I drank it, or I would have spilled it all over my sheets "'when I heard the noise.' "'Was it that loud?' asked Roz. "'No, not loud. Sudden. Quick burst,' she said, rocking the chair. "'Catherine gazed down the stretch of bay, past the rock, and straight to the seawall. "'The portico stood less than two hundred yards away. "'I rose from my bed, of course, and came downstairs.' "'Well, what did you see?' asked Catherine. "'Nothing. Are you sure I can't get you something to eat?' Catherine smiled. "'Thank you. We're all set.' After the noise, I looked out the window, and I saw the rock and the sidewalk and the streetlight. It was pretty quiet, like it always is at night. "'Was anyone near the portico?' asked Catherine. "'You know, walking around.' "'Oh, you mean the rock?' asked Eleanor. "'Right.' Eleanor turned in the rocking chair and pulled back the lace curtains. "'No, I only saw the one car when I went back upstairs.' A car? Really? What kind of car? asked Roz. Oh, it was a Studebaker, just like Edna McGillicuddy's car. Was it her car? asked Catherine. No, Edna has a light blue car. This car was yellow with a black convertible top and parked on the far side of the portico. Roz tilted her head. Did that stupid bucker car stop? Studebaker, yellow Studebaker. I went back to bed. In Catherine's dream, the yellow car was parked exactly as Eleanor Kroll had described. Ross turned on the couch and leaned toward the window. You hear anything else out there, Elle? Eleanor removed her sharp-edged glasses. I could have been dreaming, but I could swear I heard a boat engine later. Chapter 25 The heavy cars, mostly with white wall tires, were parked along Howard Johnson's Orange Roof Restaurant. Behind the restaurant, the ocean waves gently rolled inward across the bay. Standing in line, Roz pointed to the ice cream menu above the takeout window. Catherine buttoned up her jacket in the cooler air. Roz, it's too cold for ice cream. Oh, us feathers. We have 28 flavors, Catherine Marie. Which one do you want, Roz? How long will it take to run through the home menu? asked Tucker, chuckling. You talking to me, Tuck? Tucker grinned as he studied the menu. So you don't like the flavors? Roz produced a guttural laugh. (laughs) I never met an ice cream flavor I didn't like. I can't make up my mind, said Catherine. It's easy, Catherine Marie. We got banana, black raspberry, burgundy, cherry, butter pecan, butter crunch, butterscotch, caramel fudge, chocolate, chocolate chip. We also have coconut, coffee, frozen pudding, fruit salad, fudge ripple, lemon stick, macaroon, Maple, walnut, mocha, chip, orange, pineapple, peach, peanut brittle, pecan brittle. She inhaled as the two people in line turned. And peppermint stick, pineapple, pistachio, strawberry, strawberry ripple, and vanilla. Whoopee! The people in line clapped and Roz bowed. I'll take vanilla, said Catherine, shaking her head. Well, that's a real sizzler. What about you, Tuck? Make it two. Roz rolled her eyes as they reached the window. The curly-haired, blonde waitress stuck her head outside. I'll have one scoop of strawberry ripple, a second of peppermint stick, and top it with boring vanilla. She stuck out her tongue at Tucker, shaking his head. Tucker ordered two vanilla cones. He stared down at the bay beach as they waited. I know what you're thinking, Tucker, said Catherine. How do we hire somebody to go underwater out in the bay? He had a subtle grin. Cops won't do it without good reason. I have a pretty good idea where the bodies are. Me too. Dreams were vivid. Ross swung around with a triple-decker mound of pink and red ice cream topped by vanilla. That's a mountain. She licked the ice cream. Then let me start climbing. The waitress handed the cones to Tucker and they walked toward the beach. Catherine licked the vanilla and the coolness settled in her mouth. Ah, this hits the spot. Ah, it hits a lot of spots, said Ross as she wiped her mouth with the white paper napkin. Let me ask you two this. Bud's widow agreed to meet with us tomorrow, correct? Correct. Correct. Catherine and Tucker answered together. She won't know what happened to Billy and Shane, or it would have to come out over the years. Tucker put his boot on the bench as he ate the cone. From my point of view, I want to know about Maritokas' relationship with Bud Kerrigan how they met, who handled the finances. We need to get as much info on him as well as Ritter. Mrs. Kerrigan may be reluctant to talk. As Catherine spoke, a motorcycle's engine revved, and the younger version of Nick Rizzo rounded the parking lot entrance. Catherine held Tucker's wrist. Tucker, that's Nick Rizzo. Sure, it's the same guy on the bike that went by at Jansen's house, said Tucker. He studied Rizzo's thin face and dark hair cut close to the skull. Rizzo wore a dirty t-shirt and had a flat stomach. As he dismounted, Roz and Catherine hunkered around Tucker. In jeans and a black leather jacket, he sashayed into the Howard Johnson's main restaurant. Well, what are we worried about? asked Catherine. He doesn't know us in 1958. Unless the weasel is the one that followed us in the pickup, said Roz, we should trail him when he leaves. Tucker chewed the last morsel of his cone. That's not a bad idea, Roz. Could lead us to Ritter. He checked his watch. Okay. He guided them along the park cars to the Belvedere. They quickly got inside the convertible with the top up. Roz continued to attack her triple-decker cone. Rizzo exited the restaurant with two white paper bags. Seconds later, the cycle engine roared and he circled the parking lot. Tucker stared at the Belvedere and quickly maneuvered to the entrance as Rizzo sped back toward town. They were stopped at the intersection traffic light, just a few cars behind Rizzo's bike. When the light turned green, Rizzo shot down Water Street toward the portico. Tucker drove with one hand on the wheel and progressed slowly in pursuit without signaling. Near the portico, Rizzo and the bike were angled at a parking space next to a red and white Corvette with the bubble top in place. As he swung his legs over the seat, the little guy with greasy combed hair, yellow shirt, and white slacks stepped from the Corvette. "'The Corvette,' said Catherine. "'That's him, Maritocus. Tucker rolled into a driveway, separating a clapboard house and a long brick warehouse. "'With hair, for Christmas sakes,' shouted Roz. "'He can't be more than in his late twenties. Tucker shut off the engine and leaned toward Catherine and Roz. "'Stay right here.' "'What are you doing, Tucker?' asked Catherine as he opened the door. I'm going to sneak around that portico and try and listen in. I'm going with you, she said. Well, don't leave me here, said Roz, still licking the cone. Tucker led them down the drive and stopped near the edge. Catherine leaned on his shoulder and Roz hung on to Catherine. Well, there they are, Catherine said in a low voice. Murderers. Rizzo never removed the restaurant's paper bags. He planted his feet curbside and waved his arms in a wild confrontation with Dimitri. Catherine could hear portions of the argument. A stupid idiot! I don't think Jansen's gonna do a damn thing, said Rizzo. Dimitri stood inches below the taller man's face. Then, could you kindly tell me why you lost that car in the state forest? Tucker spoke over his shoulder. He knows, he knows. Rizzo stepped back and paced for a second. Then he just turned. I say just let me slit their throats, Dimitri. Roz held her throat with both hands and stuck out her tongue. Dimitri jotted something in a small notebook. Well, we have to find them first. Did it ever occur to you they might have information that could put you away for the rest of your life, or worse? Dimitri walked, shaking his head toward the portico, but abruptly faced the bay. Rizzo, unnerved by the distance, quickly joined him. He spoke in a lower voice and appeared to be pleading with Dimitri. Catherine gripped Tucker's shoulder when Rizzo pointed toward the bay. Dimitri immediately returned to the Corvette, and the sound of Rizzo's bike engine ripped through the neighborhood as he left the portico. Dimitri maneuvered the Corvette like a precision machine down the road. The motorcycle engine quickly faded as Tucker stood with Roz and Catherine at the end of the driveway. Hey, said a bald guy in an undershirt at the side door of the clapboard house. This house is private property. Get that friggin' car out of here. Yeah, we're friggin' leaving right now, said Tucker. The man waved his hand through the air and returned into the house. Quickly, Tucker brought them back to the car. Once they were inside, Catherine faced them both. they have become aware of us in this time period, for sure. And they want us frigging dead, said Roz. Tucker half-grinned as he started the Belvedere. Then we'll just have to outfox those frigging friggers. Chapter 26 Afternoon shadows spread over Main Street as Tucker had telephoned Jansen from a drugstore payphone. The sergeant had actually been waiting for him to call and had scheduled an evening meeting at the wayside with Willard O'Connor, the county district attorney. For the first time since the dreams first frayed her emotions in Ohio, Catherine believed that Rita's ugly conspiracy might unravel. After a quick snack, they drove back to the apartment. She showered, and put on jeans and a white cable sweater purchased a few hours ago at a small department store downtown. "'Does Jansen know that Rizzo is watching him?' asked Roz in a slow, squeaky voice from the couch. "'Oh, my gut is killing me!' "'I'll let Jansen know about Rizzo,' said Tucker, grabbing a lightweight coat he had also purchased. Roz raised her hand. "'I say, book him. "'Are you sure you'll be all right, Roz?' asked Katherine. Oh, I just needed to let it all settle. Roz, I'm worried about you, said Catherine, sitting next to her. Too many scoops, too many mile-long hot dogs. Then she sat up. Look, you have to tell this O'Connor that Shane and Billy are dead in the harbor and that Ritter did it, that's all. Can't prove that, said Tucker. Roz's eyes hung heavy as she spoke. Doesn't matter. You have to tell them. I agree, said Catherine. Let them run with it. Tucker rolled his tongue around his cheek. I see your point. "'I wish I could go with you to see Bud's wife this afternoon. "'We'll fill you in on all of it.' "'Can we get anything for you, Roz?' asked Catherine. "'Nah, Pepto-Bismol should kick in.' "'Catherine hugged her. "'I hope you feel better.' "'I will, kid, I will.' "'She looked up at Tucker. "'Be careful of that baby Belvedere, Tuck. "'Rizzo and Dimitri will be looking.' "'Catherine stood. "'I wonder if Sid has talked to Rizzo.' "'Roz swung her arm through the air.' If you want to cancel that date with Big Sid, please feel free. Now we'll see how this meeting goes, Chipmunk. No, now I am sick. I'm going to need a few stiff belts to date that creep. Catherine waved with her fingers as she followed Tucker outside. The leaves crunched on the front walk in the cool and dry afternoon breeze. The red belvedere glistened in the sunlight. We may need to switch cars so Rizzo can't track us down, said Tucker. You heard Maritocus." Anything we have to do to nail Ritter. Or die. The narrow, steep road curved up at a sharp angle. Tucker slowed and pumped the brake pedals several times as he signaled. As he rumbled onto the opposite shoulder, the remnants of Bug Carrigan's accident materialized in his head. The shoulder dipped at an angle away from the crushed bluestone. He and Catherine opened the Belvedere's doors in unison. She moved around the hood to the edge of the downward grade. A towering oak mixed with red and green foliage shared the slope with numerous pines and maples. A three-foot section of bark scraped to the white and a flattened grass trail showed exactly where Bud's 88 had flipped and careened into the woods. He never had a chance, Tucker, said Catherine, squinting in the afternoon sunlight. With no brakes at the turn, there's no way Bud could have controlled the car. This is the way he always came home. Imagine the horror when he took that turn. Tucker's fists tightened. They just got rid of him. He got in Maritokas' way. And Ritter? Taking a man's life so they could swindle him and advance Ritter's career. Now I understand why we're all here. It's all about justice, Catherine. She briefly held his wrist. I feel as if there's evil surrounding all of this. Tucker stared down the gully at the oak, shaded in the shadow and the sunshine. They know we're after them. We need to be very careful and extremely clever. I worry about Ross, Tucker. Tucker checked the side roads as they passed. She said it herself. She's got the bug. We're in another time period. Don't think we're immune. You have got her aspirin and the Pepto-Bismol. He put his hand on her hand. And we'll be back tonight after the meeting with Jansen and the district attorney. She'll be fine. He slowed near a privately owned gas station along Plymouth's rural coast. Catherine checked a piece of paper with Mrs. Kerrigan's address written in red ink. Number 65, Cushman. Well, there's Cushman, said Tucker, shifting. He turned and immediately slowed at a gabled, three-storied, red-shingled house with a louvered glass-front porch. Spindly orange maples shaded the wispy-yellowed grass. I bet that lawn hasn't been mowed since Bud died said Tucker, surveying the property. He pointed to an older, pollen-coated blue Ford parked diagonally in the stone drive. Another car. I wonder if she really knows anything about the 88. Oh, she sounded so sad on the phone, said Catherine. Tucker gave her a quick nod. And Dimitri, Ritter, and company think they're in the clear for killing her husband. As they approached across the slate lawnstones, a rotund woman with silver hair and a yellow sundress and a white sweater appeared at the open, louvred screen door. Behind her narrow glasses, Mrs. Kerrigan's reddened eyes could not hide her grief. "'Thank you for seeing us, Mrs. Kerrigan. We're so sorry about Bud,' said Catherine as they entered the bacon-filled air inside. "'I'm Catherine Jenner, and this is John Tucker. Ma'am, please come in.' She had large blue eyes and silver-rimmed glasses. "'Thank you for your concern,' Dean Jansen said you were helping him find out about Bud's finances. Please come in. I apologize. The place is a mess. I haven't done a thing since I lost Bud. Casual wicker furniture and a glass table were scattered about the porch area. She brought them to a small foyer and hallway inundated with black and white framed photographs. Catherine somehow recognized Shane. Her short, dark hair tucked under her graduation cap. With Bud and Mrs. Kerrigan, Bud had wavy gray hair, glasses, and an inviting smile. A dozen other pictures adorned the green-striped wallpaper. In his younger years, Bud had strikingly dark eyes and a trim physique and perfect white teeth. "'Where are Shane's parents?' asked Tucker. "'Bud and I raised Shane.' She didn't volunteer any of the details, nor did Catherine deem the details important. "'I see, and she and Billy went together.' "'Oh, I think they eloped.' Oh, said Catherine as her eyes filled. Bud like Billy. Mrs. Kerrigan led them into the parlor with high-backed chairs and a smooth blue fabric sofa. Please sit down. Mrs. Kerrigan, what do you know about Bud's finances? Oh, I, I never bothered Bud about his business dealings. It's very odd what has happened. Odd? asked Catherine. Well, my lawyer said Bud's business accounts are empty and I don't know why. Like he knew something was going to happen. Are there any records of the withdrawals? Why, I suppose the bank has those. Mrs. Kerrigan assumed a stiff position in the high back chair. Tucker folded his hands on his thighs and leaned forward. Any mention of what Bud was up to? You know, phone calls, people coming into the house. But just the usual, Bud was on the phone all the time, you know, being a real estate agent. He had clients coming and going, salesmen coming and going. What about Meritokis? asked Tucker. Dimitri? Was he over here? Oh, no. Even though he had become Bud's partner last year, it was strictly business. Bud called him the wheel wheeler dealer. He worked the office and the field. We never knew him socially. Tucker spoke quickly. How did Bud link up with him? She inhaled and then slumped back in the chair. Funny about that, Bud actually met him at the wayside one night. Dimitri was visiting Plymouth as many tourists do. This is the home of Plymouth Rock, you know. They met at the bar and got talking about business. Bud always had two glasses of wine after a long business day. It relaxed him by the time he got home. Did Dimitri offer him anything? Not that I know of. "'Dimitri had big money and was a big talker,' Bud said. "'So he just dropped what he was doing and settled in Plymouth?' asked Catherine. She leaned forward. "'Doesn't that strike you as odd, Mrs. Kerrigan?' "'I never thought about it, because Dimitri wrote a lot of business. The Englewood development last year was a good land deal. And then the new one?' "'Capitol Hill.' "'Yes, that's the one. Bud called Dimitri about it when the first deal broke. I heard the conversation.' Tucker's eyes opened wide. Do you have a record of his real estate phone calls, say, uh, over the last few months? Maybe at his office with the phone company. Just what are you getting at, Mr. Tucker? Well, I'm not sure, but I think it would be worth looking into. Tucker stood and wandered from the couch to the front window. Phone numbers can connect events and transactions, Catherine. Remember, we need all the physical proof we can get. No one's going to care about the dreams we had. we that said 88, Tucker. I'm sure the 88 is long gone. Tucker remained at the window, but he swiped open the curtain. What the hell is that? What do you see, Tucker? I just saw a motorcycle leave the gas station out on Route 3A. She ran across the braided rug. At the window, she saw an empty gas station. Where? It may be Rizzo. I hope it's not Rizzo. We have to move fast, damn fast. By mid-afternoon, Tucker had stationed himself at the window for at least an hour as Catherine went through the telephone records. She vigorously copied dozens of phone numbers. The interchange names confused her. Do you have a list of those local phone names, you know, like Union and Juniper? Yes, right in the front of the book. Mrs. Kerrigan handed the open directory book to Catherine. Well, we have Temple, we have Union, we have Juniper. Juniper, long distance, to Brockton, said Mrs. Carrigan. Who did Bud know in Brockton? I have at least three dozen phone calls to a number in Brockton just in one month. Well, I know Mr. Maritokas had an apartment in Brockton. How come? asked Tucker. She shrugged her shoulders. I'm not sure. We rode by it once. It was on... "'Warren Ave, a short distance from downtown Brockton.' "'Do you have a number?' "'Do you have a street number?' asked Catherine. "'Let me see,' she said, puffing her lips like a bullfrog. "'537. It was 537.' "'Well, we'll definitely check out that address,' said Tucker. "'As far as Bud's log, I can have the log photostatted. "'Do you have any other records?' asked Catherine.' No, but I can call the phone company and have them make photostats of Bud's business calls, if that helps. Sure would, thank you. Catherine paused, swallowed, and her eyes sharpened. Do you think Bud's accident was an accident? From the window, Tucker turned. Mrs. Kerrigan pressed her lips and removed her glasses. She rubbed her eyes and then put the glasses back on. I hope it was just an accident. Have you heard anything else? I just don't think it's been thoroughly checked out. No one even knows where his car is. She smiled a distant smile. Bud bought that car brand new. He loved his 88. She sniffled and Catherine moved over to comfort her. If Bud were here and he thought the truth was being twisted, he'd want to get to the bottom of it. Catherine held her hand. So do we, Mrs. Kerrigan. So do we. Chapter 27 Tucker shifted and pulled into a gas station near a traffic light. A green uniformed man wearing a hat with a Sinclair dinosaur logo scampered from the station when the Belvedere rolled over a black cord, tripping a bell inside. Fill it. Regular, said Tucker. Yes, sir. Fill it. Regular. Check under the hood? Yeah, good idea. Yes, sir. Look, Dino gas. Twenty-four cents a gallon. Hell, the car was only three grand. The man removed the gas cap from under the trunk area, pulled the nozzle from the tall white pump and stuck it in the tank. Each of the pumps had a green dinosaur label and flip over black and white numbers. Tucker chuckled as the man raced to the pump island and dipped a long-handled squeegee into a bucket. He darted to the front windshield, the squeegee pad dripping, and vigorously scrubbed the dirty windshield. This guy sure earns his money, she said as the attendant slid the rubber blade over the water-smeared glass, producing a clear view toward the car stopping at the traffic light. Moments later, he elevated the hood, yanked out the lengthy dipstick, and pulled it through a pressed paper towel. He furrowed his brow and then leaned around the hood. Looks fine, sir. Thank you, thank you, replied Tucker. Air for the tires, sir. The front one on your side looks a little weak. Well, go for it, sir. Yes, please. Uh, Air for the tires. Yes, sir. The man scooted to the air pump next to the building and adjusted the pressure. The machine clicked as he dragged the pink pump hose around the hood. Catherine held Tucker's wrist. Where did this service go? Self-serve. Everyone has a niche and a place back here. She thought about Jansen's message. Do you think the DA will believe any of this, Tucker? I don't know, he said as another attendant pulled the nozzle from the gas tank and placed it back in the pump. Air gushed in the front tire and a bell at the air pump dinged. I'd say the fact he's agreed to the meeting with Jansen is good. We get the DA on our side, and Ritter and Maritokas are sunk. We got him. I want to somehow get any records Dimitri might have at his place. Records that would really convict him. Will that be all, sir, asked the attendant, holding the airline in his hand. Yes, thank you. It's good to see such service. Thank you, sir. We care about our customers. That'll be $3 even. Tucker removed the crisp green bills from his leather wallet. The man tipped his hat once the money graced his hand. Thanks again. You have a good night, sir, and you too, ma'am. Come back and see us again. Thank you, said Catherine. Tucker, there was no LCD on that pump. The numbers spun around like the old-fashioned odometer here in the car. Tucker started the car and looped around the traffic light. She studied his well-defined facial features as he drove back into town. Her stomach tingled with the anticipation of meeting Jansen and the district attorney. She wondered about Bud Kerrigan's route to the wayside on the night of his accident. Bud's anger with and his fear of losing his life savings, must have haunted his thoughts upon leaving town. The well-traveled road, shadowed by older, well-kept houses, followed a ridge above the water. The wayside's white neon light flashed only a few hundred yards beyond the Howard Johnson's restaurant. At the bottom of the hill near the town beach, Catherine studied the parking lot where someone more than likely had tinkered under Bud's hood and drained the brake fluid. The Belvedere's directional clicked, and Tucker veered down the sloping asphalt ramp into the wayside's gravel lot. Bud's phone records need to be checked out by the DA. I think we need to do the checking and then go to the DA. Agreed. The approaching waves filled the air with the rapidity of a ticking clock's steady cadence. Built close to the shore and along a rock jetty, the restaurant's array of lights twinkled across the harbor. An outside boardwalk terrace extended over the water, and cold, salty air moved inward with the waves. Tucker checked the gravel parking lot. Several dozen cars were already parked near the entrance, including Jansen's black police cruiser. A new black Lincoln shined under the neon light. That drained brake fluid would be all over this parking lot. If it was asphalt, it would still be visible. Unless it leaked onto the highway. Or if they were smart, they had a pan. As the cars passed on the highway, he placed his hand behind her back. The gravel moved beneath her tennis shoes as they marched toward the entrance ahead. Tucker escorted her up a gray board ramp to a wood door with small panes. An older man in a white shirt and red tie opened the inner door. They entered the warmer air, perfumed by the scent of dozens of steamy dinners inside a foyer adorned with a spreading brass chandelier. Cigarette haze hung in the air. Good evening, sir. We're here to uh, meet Dan Jansen. Yes, of course. You must be Mr. Tucker and Miss Jenner. He motioned with his hand. Please come this way. Jansen in his navy blue police uniform sat with his back to them in a booth overlooking the harbor, outside a long window. A few pinpoint lights punctuated the darkness across the bay. Across the booth, the bald man, with short white side hair, sat rigid. He wore a blue striped vest and held a black pipe in his hand. Another cop sat next to Jansen. Yeah, ha 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 Jansen laughed at something the older man said, but quickly stood as Tucker and Catherine approached. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming. This meeting is essential, said Catherine. Miss uh, Jenna, Mr. Tucker, said Jansen, this is District Attorney Willet O'Connor. I'm Sergeant Nobody, said the other cop, smoking a cigarette. This is my partner, Johnny Lorton. Gentlemen, said Tucker. How do you do, said Catherine, sliding into the wood booth. Tucker sat next to her. I'll scoot over here, said Jansen, as he sat next to O'Connor. Coffee? Asked Jansen. Tucker nodded. Jansen motioned to the waiter and then pointed at Tucker and Catherine. O'Connor cleared his throat. Miss Jenner and Mr. Tucker, I'm a man who doesn't like to waste anyone's time. I can understand that, said Tucker, as the waiter brought coffee and a carafe. O'Connor gazed at his yellow pad, already half-filled with writing. He paused until the waiter left, and then he looked Tucker in the eye. Who the hell are you people? Tucker hesitated, but Catherine spoke. I'm a good friend of Shane Kerrigan, and I can't find her. O'Connor, about to light his pipe, made eye contact. I understand from Sergeant Jensen that both Shane and her boyfriend are missing, and I'm sorry about that, but we are not at this time filing any investigation of the disappearance. He flipped back a few pages on the pad. What we are doing is a preliminary investigation into Dimitri Maritokas' business dealings. "'Well, hot damn,' said Tucker. "'Sir?' "'Nah, it's okay. "'And as a part of that investigation, "'we want to see if the death of Bud Kerrigan "'is related to the land deal for the Capitol Hill development.' "'Well, this is good news,' said Catherine. "'O'Connor's rounded brown eyes scoured the restaurant as he spoke. "'Sergeant Jansen says that Capitol Hill required no investors. "'Bud Kerrigan put up all the money himself.' $80,000. When Bud was here inside this very restaurant, said Tucker, just before the crash, did he mention anything about Maritokas and Capitol Hill? Well, Becky love it over there, said O'Connor as he waved a bleach blonde over to the table. Becky, tell us what you know about Bud Kerrigan on the night of his accident. Becky's blue eyes darted between O'Connor and Jansen. Bud had two glasses of wine and talked with me about... You know, local things. What local things? asked Catherine. The waitress looked at O'Connor again. Oh, just some things about the football team. He spoke about his wife and him going on a trip to Florida, but he never made it, did he? Nothing about Capitol Hill or Dimitri Maritokas? She shook her head. No. Was he alone? asked Tucker. Oh, Bud sat at the bar when I talked to him. He wasn't here very long. O'Connor scribbled and flipped back his notes. Kerrigan's blood alcohol levels were consistent with just two glasses of wine. What was he like that evening? asked Catherine. This isn't a court hearing, said O'Connor, finally lighting his pipe. A pungent almond smoke spread across the table. Was well, it just a simple question? said Tucker. Becky's lips were tight as she checked with O'Connor once again. Does she have to clear everything with you, Mr. O'Connor? Answer the question, Miss Lovett. "'Bud was tired.' "'That's it. He was just tired,' asked Tucker. "'Yes, sir.' Once again, she made eye contact with the pipe-smoking O'Connor. "'Did you see anyone outside by his car?' "'That's enough. This isn't an interrogation,' said O'Connor. "'Thank you, Miss Lovett.' She headed back to the bar. Catherine shook her head. "'Somebody cut the brake line.' "'Well, that's an interesting theory, Miss Jenner. How do you know this?' "'Where's the proof?' Well, it was towed to the Horowitz Salvage Yard, said Tucker. O'Connor glanced at his notes. Well, the car is no longer in Horowitz's yard and carver, according to Sergeant Jensen. Jensen finished his coffee. Well, Sid told me it was taken away, but he doesn't know where it went. Tucker raised his brow and looked at Catherine. He tapped his fingers rapidly on the wooden table edge. You find that car, O'Connor, and you might have something. "'Unlikely, Mr. Tucker. Can't you make Sid Horowitz testify?' "'Oh, Sid knows when to shut up,' said Jansen. "'You don't understand. Just this afternoon we heard Maritokas tell Nick Rizzo to find Catherine and myself.' "'So what?' asked O'Connor. "'We're afraid for our lives because we've been looking into this,' added Catherine. "'Did Maritokas actually say that?' asked O'Connor. "'Well, not exactly, but... O'Connor stretched out his hands. Okay, listen, here is my plan. I'm going to ask Dimitri Meritokas to speak with me under oath. If he refuses, I'll subpoena him. The same is true for this radio kid, Ritter, and Nick Rizzo. Well, who exactly is Nick Rizzo? asked O'Connor. A punk kid around 20. He's been watching your house, Danny, said Catherine. Jansen's eyes popped open. My house? That motorcycle, the motorcycle that went by when we were there, was Rizzo, said Tucker. And Maritocus ordered that? We did hear that, added Catherine. What can be done about all this? O'Connor did not respond. He held both sides of his yellow line pad. While I'm having Mrs. Lovett and the other witnesses or anyone else working here last Saturday make a list of people they might remember being here in the restaurant." I'm working on getting a search warrant for Maritokas' apartment in North Plymouth, as well as Bud Kerrigan's bank withdrawals. If anything illegal took place, we should be able to establish a trail. Well, that's at least a start, said Catherine. O'Connor puffed his pipe. I think for practical matters, it might be smart to find out more about Dimitri Maritokas' background. Excuse me, Mr. O'Connor, I talked to a Mrs. Eleanor Crowell. She heard what she says was a car backfiring, but it may have been shots at Plymouth Rock last week. Well, Sergeant Jansen told me of this. As I said to him, how does that relate to this case, Miss Jenner? Well, what if it was a gunshot? Tucker leaned forward. There's one thing else she did see. A late model yellow Studebaker with a black convertible top. O'Connor's dark eyes were rigid behind his pipe. Let's just concentrate on Maritokas. A tall man with slightly graying hair approached the table. His thin red tie contrasted with his white shirt. Excuse me, Mr. O'Connor, that phone call you were waiting for? Great, great, thank you, Tom. If you people will excuse me. O'Connor slid from the booth and moved with the owner to an opening behind the bar. That was the owner of the wayside, Tom Shields, said Jansen. Have you ever talked to him about Bud Carrigan? asked Catherine. Jansen looked toward Shields across the room and squinted. I did. Tom wasn't around the night that Bud had his accident. As Tom crossed the main restaurant, Jansen raised his hand. He had a wide smile as he approached. Do I look like a waitress, Danny? Nah, the legs are all wrong, said Jansen, and they all chuckled. Watch it, watch it. Tom, do you think anyone fiddled with Bud's car? asked Jansen. Shields raised his bushy brows. You mean here at the wayside? Jansen nodded. What would they have done? breaks said Catherine oh I think somebody would have seen that or we would have cleaned it all up my name is Catherine Jenner I'm working on this privately with Sergeant Jansen well hello Miss Jenner Catherine folded her hands on the table do you know anyone who owns a yellow Studebaker Shields shook his head and, can't say that I do why Eleanor Kral heard a backfire near our house last week and saw a yellow Studebaker in the area that incident might be related to Bud, said Jansen. Well, I'll ask around. I meet a lot of people, he said as O'Connor returned. Could I have another 7-7, seven and seven, Tom, on the rocks? Anyone else? Receiving no answer, Shields said he would be right back. I have more good news. Judge Winslow has just granted the order. We can search Maritokas' apartment. Chapter 28 With the covers pulled up, Catherine nuzzled against the slotted table radio. Since 11 p.m., The Voice had conducted his talk show with professionalism and an entertainment flair that would propel him into a future broadcast career. As the news ended, Ritter's Spanish guitar theme combined with a dial tone and ringing phone line. A siren accompanied the announcer's voice as the guitar faded. Conrad Ritter! Gentlemen, you have tuned in to 56 on the AM dial to the Conrad Ritter Show, the voice of Plymouth and the New England shore. She sat up but kept the radio at her ear as Ritter's voice once again resonated in the radio speaker. Hello, New England. This is Conrad Ritter speaking to you from our studios atop Pilgrim Hill here in Plymouth, Massachusetts. We've just crossed the midnight hour here on the Atlantic coast on a chilly September night. You know, this afternoon I had the opportunity to go out to Horse Beach and walk the shoreline. Sometimes I don't think we appreciate the beauty we have here along the coast. I happened to meet several young ladies from Kentucky who, frankly, had never seen the ocean. Carrie, I know you're out there listening to The Voice, and I will quote your wonderful impression of the Atlantic Ocean. Ritter then modulated his voice as if he were a woman. My, that's a mighty big pond! A drumroll and cymbals clashed, and Ritter chuckled. Well, we all had a great dinner at the wayside later on. Tom, thank you very much. Catherine pictured Ritter sitting at the table with a bottle of wine and the three young women. Okay, let's get to the news of the night. In the same week that President Eisenhower signed the Alaska Statehood Act into law, there was a 7.5 Richter scale earthquake in Latua Bay, Alaska. Well, come on, Ike. Maybe someone is trying to tell you something. And the earthquake caused a landslide with a huge tidal wave. Good God. Beware, Republicans. Senator Kennedy, if you're listening to The Voice, be glad that you weren't Stevenson's VP. You may need to run for the big office yourself, Jack. A tidal wave in Alaska. Man, if that happened here along the New England coast, can you imagine? Rita might have been at the wayside during her meeting with O'Connor and Jansen. She set the radio back on the side table and lay her head on the pillow. Rita's voice bounced through her thoughts as she drifted into sleep. Inside a 1958 gray and white Ford Fairlane, along the seawall, Catherine studied Bud Kerrigan's freshly photostatted records from the phone company. Tucker repeatedly checked the rearview mirror. I'd miss my Belvedere, said Roz in a whiny voice. Tucker looked over his shoulder. We don't want to be a target for Maritokas and Company. You look tired, Tucker. Did you sleep? Asked Catherine, running her finger down the phone numbers. Sleep and me are good buddies, sometimes. Identical numbers in Brockton were dialed from both the office and Bud's home. Catherine looked up. Brockton keeps popping up all over the place, especially this JU-69045. A Brockton connection. Tucker shut off the car. We need to call and then, and then get the full address. You don't trust O'Connor with this information, do you? asked Catherine. Tucker grimaced. Something tells me to get to the info first. And You're telling me that Ritter being at the wayside last night may just be a coincidence. He might have just come in later. Catherine nodded and turned around to Roz. You ready for the big double date with Sid? Roz feigned a smile. I've got more important things to think about, like natural disasters, fires, earthquakes in Alaska. Catherine Marie, turn up the radio. I like that song. Who's sorry now? asked Catherine. Oh, man, could I answer that question or what? said Roz. Conrad Ritter's voice came over the speaker when the song ended. This is Conrad Ritter, and I'll be broadcasting live this week from Paragon Park on Nantasket Beach. My show will begin at 8 p.m., a little earlier, so come down and win a free ticket to the Penny Arcade or ride the giant roller coaster. That's this weekend at Paragon Park, Nantasket Beach. Catherine looked at Roz's dark eyes. Well, Hal's Bell's get my appointment book. Well, he does have somewhat of a talent, said Tucker. Catherine held his wrist. Tucker, this guy is a murderer. Tucker nodded again and checked the sidewalk. What's the agenda today, Tucker? We need to snoop along the waterfront and then find out about that yellow Studebaker. And O'Connor was supposed to send people to Meritokus's apartment this morning. We need to tell Jansen about this Warren Abb place in Brockton. I have a feeling, said Catherine, This is the end of Dimitri and Ritter. One thing you're forgetting, Catherine Marie, Dimitri ain't stupid. Good point, said Tucker. Just look what he does with Ritter's career in the future. You need to push Sid, Roz. We need to know where they brought that 88. You know that song Tequila we heard a while ago? "'We'll get him so looped.' "'You're his chipmunk, Roz. He'll talk to you.' "'Oh, I know he'll talk to me. "'It's just what he's going to say that bothers me.' "'Roz panned across the bay toward the portico. "'Let's split up here and see what we can see.' "'Tucker shook his head. "'No, no, no. Not a good time. Not a good idea at this time.' "'Plus, you're still sick, Roz. I'm kind of okay.' "'Things have changed,' said Tucker. "'Somebody tried to kill us. If we split up, "'we have three times the amount of targets.' Well, this is a long waterfront, said Catherine. With tour guides and shops, somebody has to have seen a black-topped yellow Studebaker. Tucker stood at the end of the aquatop chrome stools at the Shiretown ice cream shop. Roz and Catherine sat down. Roz lowered her head onto her folded elbows on the black-and-white checkerboard counter. Catherine called the waitress. A bulbous redhead in a pistachio-colored smock, Chatted with an elderly gentleman smoking a cigarette at the end of the counter. Excuse me, miss. We need some service down here. She looked up and rolled her eyes. What is it? Oh, sorry to interrupt you. Three waters. You'll need to order if you want water. Well, my friend is sick. You'll need to order if you want water. Tucker's face contorted as he walked forward. His boots sounded against the dark tiles. Let me get this straight. You have three people here who are thirsty. One of us is sick. Well, it's the owner's policy, she said as if she were getting some inner satisfaction from denying them water. Well, it's a dumb policy, cutie, said Roz from her elbows. Give me a box of tutti-frutti taffy. Then can we get the water? She put her hand on her hip. With the purchase, you are entitled to one glass of water. Tucker sat in the front of her now. You tell your boss he's a bonehead. I'll share my water, Tucker, said Roz, looking up. I can get Mr. Alfarts on the phone, said the waitress, curling down her mouth as she picked up the phone. Tucker slightly grinned and shook his head. Tucker, it doesn't matter, said Catherine. Tucker peered into the back room. Miss, can I see that picture on the wall back there? Sir, this is private property. Like I said, I can get Mr. Alfarts on the phone if you do that. Tucker, what are you going to say to him? asked Catherine as she stood. The waitress served a glass of water and a box of tutti-frutti taffy to Roz. Catherine leaned over the counter as the waitress asked the operator to connect to the fishy palace. She balanced on one foot and then rolled her eyes as she spoke in a whiny voice. Yes, Mr. Alfarts, I have a man here. A black-framed 8x10 photo hung next to a framed dollar bill and invoices thumbtacked to the whitewashed wall. The waitress again rolled her eyes and handed the phone back to Tucker. Alfarts had an annoying booming voice. "What is it?" John Tucker here. He coughed directly into the phone. <laughs> Ralph Alfarts. <laughs> what do you want? Yes, Mister Alfarts. What I said is this. Mister Alfarts asked Tucker, laughing. Roz nearly spit out the water as Catherine held her friend and started laughing also and broke into laughter. Listen, chump, this is Ralph Arfurtz. Right. You have a photograph on the wall in your back office. So what? You call me up to tell me I have a photo on my back wall? There's a yellow Studebaker parked in front of your taffy stand in the photo. Ross mouthed the words and sat up. Again, moron. So what? Well, I was looking for the owner of that car. After a slight pause, Alfart's cleared his voice. Harry? Both Roz and Catherine sang out his name. Who the hell are you? Yelled Al Through another round of coughing, Tucker grabbed the phone tighter. I like the car. Well, Harry is a schoolteacher, but not in July. He lives here in town. Sure, he lives in North Plymouth, near St. Sebastian's Catholic Church. Tucker smiled. Then I'll see if he wants to sell his car. <laughs> is that all? Yeah, that's all. Thank you, Mr. Allfarts. What? He handed the phone back to the snarling waitress. With a mammoth smile, Tucker rolled around and placed the receiver in the redhead's hand. Thank you, Red. Huh? Catherine smiled. Very good, Tucker. Very good. Where is he? North Plymouth. We need to check the phone book. Ross placed the glass of water in his hand. Thank you, Mr. Allfarts. <laughs> Are you going to order? asked the waitress. Tucker took a cool gulp. Then he smacked his lips and wiped his mouth with his sleeve. As he stepped with Roz and Catherine toward the street, he fluttered his fingers at the waitress. Toodle do, honey. Count down to Sid, Roz. There's the drive in, said Catherine from the front seat. Count down you make it sound like a bomb's gonna go off, said Roz, pulling her hair outward. Catherine pointed to a wide a wide driving screen visible through the foliage off the highway. I passed this driveway when I first drove down the four-lane through Plymouth 40 years from now. It was a dilapidated frame with trees growing around outside what was left of the screen. Drive-ins were big in this time period, said Tucker. Sounds like you're experienced at the drive-ins, Tuck, said Roz. Just call me Sid. Oh, funny, Tuck, real funny, said Roz, shaking her head. Tucker slowed at the next traffic light. He checked the paper scrap in his hand. 413 West Alden, according to the phone book. Well, you're at 206, said Ross. Catherine stared out the side window. Most homes were either natural shingled or had clapboard exteriors. We don't even know if Freeman was driving the yellow Studebaker that night. Tucker had a wide grin. I think he was. 266, said Ross. Well, Freeman couldn't have seen anything bad, or he probably would have reported it, said Catherine. I still think we should call Dan Jansen. Tucker shook his head. Could scare Freeman away if the cops come in. And I think this guy... Maybe this guy didn't see Billy or Shane kill, but he might have seen something relevant. Maybe this guy didn't see Billy or Shane kill, but he might have seen something relevant. She nodded as Ross leaned toward the front seat. You're at 300, Tuck. Tucker shifted and slowed as Ross called out the final numbers. He turned up the dirt driveway. Up the hill, in front of an unattached garage, the yellow Studebaker sat in the driveway next to the house. Well, lucky, looky, looky, said Tucker as he stopped and cut the engine. They hiked over the crushed bluestone under the maple branches to the yellow Studebaker. Catherine ran her finger over the black convertible top. They climbed onto the porch and Tucker knocked on a wood paneled door. A woman with curly chestnut hair opened the door. Yes, may I help you? Mrs. Uh, Freeman, asked Tucker. Yes, my name is John Tucker. I was wondering if your husband is home. Oh, no, Harry's over at Camp Squano at the Dakota Lodge. Ma'am, Boy Scout, fall retreat. Harry's there for another few days. She looked at Catherine and Roz. Is there anything I can help you with? Tucker stared at the yellow Studebaker. Your husband's car was seen about a week ago by Mrs. Crowell, down by the water. She listened and then brushed her hand through the air. Well, Harry drives along the water all the time. I have two boys and a little girl. Well, this was at night. Well, maybe it was this lodge meeting. Lodge meets second Saturday of the month. Harry parks near the monument and walks into town for the meeting. That would be the 13th, said Catherine. Yes, that's correct. Is there any way to call him at this camp? asked Catherine. Oh, no, they're out in the wilds. Catherine wrote down the motel phone number and handed it to Mrs. Freeman. If you talk to him before we do... Well, what happened down there? Tucker put his hands on his hips. Let's just say there was some trouble and your husband may have been a witness. Oh, good God. Sure, sure, she said, looking down at the number. I'll let Harry know. If it's that important, I can contact the troop well it is important said katherine we certainly can come back okay i'll try and contact the troop through the ranger station thank you said katherine as the door closed and they started back down the driveway what do you think tuck asked Roz. i think freeman will call the motel and i think we have a witness for now we have a double date Once an attempt is made on Roz's life as the motel is destroyed, Rizzo, Ritter, and Dimitri Maritokas mark Catherine Tucker and Roz for death. Their only hope is a meeting with the district attorney and Dan Jansen, a local cop. I can only say, ladies and gentlemen, beware of who you trust. I'm Robert P. Fitton, and I'll see you next week on Fitton on the Air, The Butterfly and the Deadly Storm.